Hey everybody, what's up? Happy Halloween. This is Ro. Now, we know we've already given you guys a Halloween episode, but being that Halloween is myself and Lobo's favorite time of the year, I decided that I wanted to toss something a little bit extra out there, a little bit more on the spooky side of things, because our last show, well, wasn't very spooky. This year, I'm going to be giving you guys two pieces of found audio. The first one is the final seance of Harry Houdini. The second one is a double album released in 1969 by Vincent Price titled Witchcraft, Magic, and Adventure in Demonology. That I know of, no digital copies of this exist, so the only way that you can find it anywhere is to get it transposed from vinyl into a digital format. It's all over the place out there, but it doesn't get played very often, so I thought it'd be pretty cool to put it here. Normally in these found audio shows, I like to go in and clean them up. I try to remove all the hiss, the pops, all the weird audio anomalies. I'm not going to do that this time around because they just sound so much cooler in their actual form the way they are. Now, real quick bit of full disclosure here. I just got off of doing an interview with Aaron and Kelly over at Charm the Water, and we do discuss Harry Houdini in there because Harry Houdini passed away in Detroit, and, well, I'm from the Detroit area. So I didn't discuss a lot of it on there because I wanted to keep it as a surprise because I didn't know when he was going to release that episode. What follows is the final Houdini seance. The final Halloween Houdini seance was October 31st, 1936, on the roof of the Knickerbocker Hotel in Hollywood. This was the greatest attempt to contact a spirit. Houdini's widow made her final effort to reach her husband, Harry Houdini, after his death according to an elaborate plan that they had agreed to, that whatever of them died first would try for 10 years to get in touch with the other on the other side. Although Harry Houdini was known as an antagonist of spiritualists, he seems to have wanted to believe that it was possible for the living and the dead to communicate, but he demanded proof. Some 300 invited guests formed the outer circle with 13 scientists, specialists in the occult, reporters, magician, and spiritual leaders joining Mrs. Houdini and the inner circle. The audio that follows is narrated by George L. Boston. The voice of Mrs. Houdini can also be heard. After this, we're going to jump into the Vincent Price double album about demonology and witchcraft. Hope you guys enjoy it. This is a long show. Happy Halloween. Peace. Oh, thou disembodied spirits, those of you that have grown old in the mysterious laws of spirit land, we greet thee. We have gathered here at the appointed time we have complied with all the requirements to enable all of you to make your presence known. Members of the spirit world have long known of the intention of this important gathering tonight. All is in readiness. Please now, the time is at hand. Make yourself known to us. Any of you, please, manifest yourself in any way possible. Please let your united strength and knowledge aid Houdini in coming through. It is the spirit of Houdini we wish to contact. Houdini, are you here? Are you here, Houdini? Please manifest yourself in any way possible. Take from this earnest gathering any strength that may be necessary for you to use. Take any vital thing from us that you may need to enable you to carry out your promise of years ago. We have waited, Houdini, oh, so long. Never have you been able to present the evidence you promised. And now, this is a night of nights. The world is listening. Harry, your world, your audience. And Bessie is here. Your Bessie, who was part of you for 33 years. 
she's here, Harry, pleading in her heart for a prearranged sign from you. It means so much to her, to all of us, to the world. Harry, we are all seekers after truth. Please manifest yourself by speaking through the trumpet. Lift it. Lift it. Speak through it. Speak. Speak, Harry. We are watching and waiting, Harry. Levitate the table. Move it. Lift the table. Move it. Wrap on it. Spell out a code, Harry. Please. Ring the bell. Let its tinkle be heard around the world. Do it, Harry. Please. Please, Houdini. We are waiting. Bessie is waiting. Oh, thou spirit. Your religion is based on love. And by that very token, a love of 33 years that have even entered into eternity, by that love I ask that you come through with the evidence. By the love of the little silver-haired widow, by the love and esteem of the countless friends, the evidence, Harry, and Houdini, Houdini, Dash, Dash is listening in. Dash, Hardeen, your brother, your brother has joined us with a circle. He is formed in New York City, 3,000 miles away. He has joined with us to seek the truth. And the circle in Baltimore, Philadelphia is listening in. In Providence, in Chicago, Leonard, who was once a protege of yours. A circle in Portland, Maine, and in the faithful city of Detroit, in Victoria, Canada, Tacoma, Rockford, Oakland, and San Francisco, all over the world, all joining in. Come through, Harry. And Houdini, Colonel Harry Day, member of the British Parliament, has formed a circle in London, England. Colonel Day was your closest boyhood friend. Houdini, you must come through. And at the bottom of the world, Australia, the country where you made history has joined in. We are crying to high heaven, to the powers that be. We are crying in one mighty magnetic voice from every corner of the earth. And the hearts and minds of the multitudes are centered here tonight. We want the evidence, the truth, in the name of humanity and love. If there is communication from the great beyond, come through with the evidence. Then followed calm and silent meditation, and again a tense and dramatic soul pleading, in which Mrs. Houdini joined Dr. Saint, but no sign from Houdini. At last Dr. Saint, in a voice that broke and filled with emotion, asked, Mrs. Houdini, the zero hour has passed. The ten years are up. Have you reached a decision. Yes. Houdini did not come through. My last hope is gone. I do not believe that Houdini can come back to me or to anyone. After faithfully following through the ten-year Houdini compact, using every type, medium, and theorem, it is now my personal and positive belief the spirit communication in any form is impossible. I do not believe that ghosts or spirits exist. 
The Houdini Shrine has burned for ten years. I now reverently turn out the light. It is finished. Good night, Harry. Beatrice Houdini turned, and with Dr. Saint left the room and stepped inside while the others waited respectfully at a distance. And suddenly a long, low, distant rumble of thunder was heard. It began to rain. Now remember, those skies had been clear but a few moments before. It rained just long enough to wet everyone on the roof of the Hollywood Knickerbocker Hotel. Then it stopped and didn't rain again all evening. To people who do not live in California, this may not seem strange. But California does not have showers, as do the East and Midwest. The country out here is rainless for months. And when rain comes, it rains for days. A brief heavy rain is an unheard of phenomenon. Was that a sign? I recall a very dear friend of mine, a magician who was with me on the roof at the time of that seance, stating as he left the roof. Houdini wasn't that sort of man. Houdini was too big of a man to come back and shake insignificant little bells, to write his name on a piece of slate, or to toot horn. Harry Houdini was a dynamic personality. Harry Houdini was a man of great ego. Harry Houdini was a man of great force. Harry Houdini, if he could return, would not have returned as a horn tooter, but perhaps as something dynamic, as something great, as something forceful, perhaps as a drop of heaven's rain. According to the scholars, it means manipulating and controlling nature by supernatural means, communicating with unseen forces and putting them to work. No, I don't mean the unseen forces of electricity or gravity or magnetism, nor even such things as invisible light, which scientists call infrared and ultraviolet, nor radioactivity, no. I mean the supernatural or preternatural, unseen forces that have been known to man since the beginning of time, but cannot be captured and catalogued by physical science for the simple reason that they are not physical. They are far greater. They belong to the mind, to the spirit. They are the ultimate reality. They are free of the bonds of time and space. They are everywhere, always. Yes, magic is everywhere. 
There is no doubt about it. But what and where and how and when and who and what are witches and magicians? <laughs> These are questions not so easy to answer simply. Do you believe in witches and magic? <laughs> I hope so. Because it can be unwise not to. Do you believe in life after death? Do you believe in luck? Do you believe in premonitions? Being somewhere where you know you've been before, although you know you've never been there? Do you believe in dreams and the unseen forces of astrology? Do you believe that there is order and genius in the hundred thousand million galaxies similar to our own? Do you believe that the life of our bodies is the beginning and end? Or do you believe in reincarnation? Perhaps in heaven and in hell? Do you believe in prophecy and poltergeists? Eh? <laughs> do you? Well, yes, you see, the universe is populated with spirits. Unseen forces which permeate all things, both tangible and intangible, both visible and invisible. Things we see and things we don't. Things we know or think we know and things we know nothing of. The natural and the supernatural. So come with me into the magic world of the supernatural. The world of witches and demons, warlocks and sorcerers, oracles and seers, alchemists and wizards into the unfathomable world of the unknown, the world of the spirits and unseen forces that guide our destiny. They are everywhere. Let's turn down the lights and throw another log on the fire. I'd like to tell you a little story. It concerns a certain Mr. Ronald Seth, a scholarly English gentleman who in Anno Domini in 1967, wrote an excellent book entitled Witches and Their Craft. When he was a little boy of seven or eight years old, Master Seth was taken by his stepmother to visit a friend who had recently birthed a baby. They lived in the Fens, a region of England, a remote and marshy moor, which has been associated with witchcraft since the most ancient times. As they were admiring the pretty baby in its cradle, there was suddenly a loud knocking at the door. The lady of the house went to answer it. Master Seth heard the gruff voice of a beggar demanding a few pennies. The lady said she had nothing to spare and slammed the door in the man's face. Master Seth's stepmother looked out of the window as the man went down the garden path and remarked that he looked more like a gypsy. As she was saying this, the young mother stooped over the cradle and screamed. The little baby's head and face were covered with a seething mass of tiny insects, like lice. The mother snatched up her purse and, trembling, gave little Master Steph two pennies, telling him to run after the stranger and give them to him. He found the vagabond in the lane, squatting by the hedge near the garden gate, waiting. He grinned and held out his hand. Changed her mind, did she? I thought she would. He pocketed the pennies. Tell her I'll take it off. The little boy ran back to the house without a word. His mother had the baby in her arms. It cooed happily. The lice had vanished, every single one. This little story doesn't really prove anything. How could it? 
But it's interesting, don't you think? Who knows? Where hast thou been, sister? Killing swine. Sister, where thou? A sailor's wife had chestnuts in her lap and munched and munched and munched. Give me, quoth I. Anoint thee, witch, the rough-faced Runyon cries. Her husband's to Aleppo gone, master of the tiger, but in a silvile thither sail, and like a rat without a tail, I'll do, I'll do, <laughs> and I'll do. And the very ports they blow, all the quarters that they know in the shipment's card. I will drain him dry as hay. Sleep shall neither night nor day hang upon his penthouse lid. He shall live a man forbid. Weary nights nine times nine shall dwindle peak and pine. Though his bark cannot be lost, yet it shall be tempest-tossed. Look what I have. Show me. Oh, show me. Here I have a pilot's thumb. Wrecked as homeward he did come. The weird sisters hand in hand, posters of the seaman thus to go about, about, thrice to thine and thrice to mine, and thrice again to make up nine. Peace! The charms wound up! But really, you know, you shouldn't be afraid of witches. They are not always evil. In fact, sometimes they can be very good friends to have on your side. The English witches today will tell you that it was they who raised the tempest that drove off the Spanish Armada. It just happened to come by chance, you say, in the very nick of time, driving the Don's warships out into the Atlantic, then back to be smashed in pieces on the vicious rocks of the remote and rugged coasts of Ireland and northern Scotland. Not so long ago, the witches will tell you, they were the force that saved England once again. In 1940, they stayed the hand of Hitler, forcing him to hesitate, immobilized, instead of sending the invincible Nazi armies across the narrow waters to smash the English. Or so Dr. Gerald Gardner, a famous anthropologist, says, Britain's defences were virtually non-existent. Only a miracle could save England now, or magic. Dr. Gardner tells how the witches gathered in a certain secret place in the New Forest. Oh, <laughs> did I forget to mention that Dr. Gardner is himself a witch. Well, he is, you know. Anyway, the great magic circle was drawn at dead of night and various secret rituals were performed. The greatest possible concentration of unseen forces were gathered. The witches raised the great cone of power and slowly directed it toward their enemy. Then they commanded Hitler with these words, You cannot cross the sea. You cannot come. You cannot come. And he did not come. But why? Dr. Gardner tells us that the witches summoned the mightiest preternatural forces of all. Exactly how it was done is a closely guarded secret of the craft 
which the witches call the old religion. But it is common knowledge, which even scientists know, that the great cone of power is an auric emanation, an invisible yet demonstrable cone of force. To gather these most powerful of all unseen forces, the witches used their own life force, and many of them died there in the new forest when this was done. But don't think Hitler didn't believe in magic. He did indeed. In fact, he was deeply involved in the black arts himself. There was a powerful group of black magicians in Germany called the Thule Society. One of the founder members of this satanic sect also helped to found the Nazi party. Another close associate of the Fuhrer was General Karl Haushofer, a university professor, an army general, a psychic, and a magician. He was also one of the founders of the Nazi party who believed it was their destiny to conquer the world and that they were to do it with the help of the supernatural powers of darkness with whom they had made contact. Having made this pact, they could only invoke the powers of evil by a magician working through a medium. The magician was Haushofer. The medium they chose was the insane but undeniably psychic Austrian corporal Adolf Hitler. People who knew Hitler recognized this quality in him instantly. Hermann Rauschning, an anti-Nazi politician and writer who fled to America in 1940, wrote that Hitler was possessed by outside forces, demoniacal forces of which he was only temporarily the vehicle. He said that looking at him was like looking at a bizarre face reflecting an unbalanced mind with a disturbing hidden power. In other words, a man possessed of the devil. Hitler was also obsessed with astrology. It is known that his master astrologer, a man named Ernst Kraft, cast his horoscope and thus they discovered where and when an attack would be most likely to succeed according to the influence of the cosmic forces. Naturally, every Nazi adventure was an absolute success. Nothing went wrong, at least not until an astrologer named Louis de Waal went to Winston Churchill and suggested fighting Hitler with his own weapon, astrology. Churchill agreed, and de Waal was made official astrologer to the British High Command. By casting Hitler's horoscope himself, he got the same information the Germans would base their moves upon, and so knew where and when Hitler would strike. In this way, the astrologer became a master cosmic spy, looking over the Fuhrer's shoulder while he laid his plans. What could be better than to eliminate the Nazis' master astrologer altogether? They turned up a letter written by the good Herr Kraft, which contained certain passages which, taken out of context, seemed to be treasonable criticism of the Nazis, even of Hitler himself. So de Waal set off for America with this letter. He showed the seemingly incriminating parts to the American newspapers. Headlines across the country screamed the news that Hitler's chief astrologer had dared to criticize the regime. Two weeks later, the Nazi's great and invaluable seer was thrown into a concentration camp at Buchenwald. From then on, Hitler completely lost his magic touch. 
he blindly made his greatest blunder. Deliberately of his own free will, he invaded the vastness of Russia, and like Napoleon before him, he never recovered. The devil-possessed Nazi leader also used his black magicians to harness the unseen powers of darkness, to jam the radar of allied bombers when they flew over Germany to lead them astray. Realizing this, the RAF set up their own psychic warfare department, sending out preternatural power waves to battle the German psychic forces as the guns and planes battled on the material level and to lure the Luftwaffe raiders into traps where they were cut to pieces by the fighters, waiting to pounce on them with the certain knowledge that they would come. When shall we three meet again? In thunder, lightning, or in rain? When the hurly-burly's done, when the battle's lost and won, there is foul and foul despair. Hover through the fog and filthy air. But that's enough for now of modern witches who ride the sabbats in automobiles instead of astride the traditional broomstick. Suffice it to know that magic is real, everywhere, unseen, unfathomable from the end of time to the beginning of time which are inseparable because they are the same unbroken a circle the magic circle itself the ancient and potent symbol of magic the perfect mystery without beginning and without end suffice it to know that witchcraft is real the old religion infinitely older than Jehovah God of the Christians Older even than the Tetragrammaton, the mystic four letters symbolizing the God of the Jews, whose name is too sacred to pronounce for fear of desecration, who has been called Adonai, my Lord, or Elohim, meaning God, since three centuries before Christ. Yes, witchcraft is alive and always has been, alive for thirty centuries before the first syllable of recorded time. Hecate, the pagan goddess of the moon, the earth, and the underworld, of hell, the dark goddess of magic, necromancy, and witchcraft, was first mentioned in literature, surviving literature, that is, by Hesiod, a Greek poet, who wrote the beginnings of the world and the birth of the gods. He wrote of Hecate eight centuries before the birth of Christ. And how many centuries old was she then? <laughs> he didn't say. We can only guess. The ancient Egyptian Book of the Dead is filled with magic instructions, charms and spells, which were written between 500 and 3,000 years B.C. The Old Testament is filled with witches and magic and prohibitions against them. And that one fatal sentence from the Book of Exodus which was to be remembered and acted upon by the witch-hunters for many centuries to come. Thou shalt not suffer a witch to live. Without any doubt, the greatest necromancer, Amurpurgist, astrologer, alchemist, and wizard of all time, 
was Solomon, king of Israel, the arch-magician. He became a legendary figure dominating the study and practice of magic for centuries to come, not only in the biblical lands, but throughout the world, in Ethiopia, Persia, India, China, and the length and breadth of Europe. It is written in ancient scrolls that Solomon drew his magic power from evil forces, having abandoned Almighty God. He worshipped Astoreth, or Asarte, goddess of love, fertility, and lust. In the book of the Kings, we read that Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. I wonder if you've noticed one very important thing, the inalienable connection between women and witchcraft. Hecate, the ancient deity of the craft, is not a god, but a goddess. The Malleus Maleficarum, or Hammer of the Witches, published in 1486, was the official guide of the Catholic Church for the persecution and extinction of witches. It states that all witchcraft springs from carnal desire, which in women is insatiable. And so to satisfy their lust, they consort even with demons. Woman by her nature is a creature of enchantment. By the fineness of her intuitions, the cunning of her wiles, she is always a witch. She, not man, is the mother of fancy, the mother of the gods. She possesses glimpses of a second sight. Her spirit has wings to soar into the infinite of longing and imagination. The paganism of ancient Greece, a bright and strong and vigorous religion, begins with a sibyl, a virgin, beautiful, brilliant in the full blaze of dawn, and ends with a sorceress. Thousands of years later, a hideous old crone on heaths and in forests, hunted like a wild beast, chased from street to street, reviled, buffeted, stoned, and burned at the stake. What an insult. What a profound and horrible injustice. The witch is the high priestess of the old faith, of the old religion, and the Christian priest, with his vows of chastity, realizes clearly where the danger lies. The old woman who heals with herbs is an enemy, a menacing rival. New punishments were devised for her special benefit, new torments invented. Witches are brought to trial en masse, condemned to death on the slightest pretext or none at all. Under the auspices of the Spanish Inquisition, as many as a hundred victims were burnt alive as witches in a single day, almost all of them women. The auto de fe, as this mass burning was called, became a macabre kind of carnival, with priests and princes of the church, dons and duchesses in magnificent robes, peasants in rags, jugglers, booths where people could buy all manners of souvenirs, relics, rosaries, holy images and food amid the screams and flames and stench of burning flesh. Imagine the horror of it. The bonfires, the pall of thick black smoke from all those burning bodies writhing in unspeakable agony, the gallons of hissing, spitting human fat melting away to a horrendous, sticky, sickening liquid pouring, boiling down the gutters as they broiled alive. The good people were drawn by the thousands, spellbound by the unspeakable charm of the fete. 
the overpowering somber spectacle and the profound effect of music. Yes, music. A macabre pageant, a tragic comedy of doom and death and agony set to music and orchestrated screams in the holy name of the Mother Church. The chronicles of the Middle Ages, the accursed registers of the Inquisition, read like a testament of doom and despair. In their vapid sameness, their dismal sterility, their shocking, arid, unconscious savagery, read a few pages and a cruel chill takes hold of your heart. Death, death, always death. You feel it everywhere. One word recurs continually like a bell of doom, of utter horror told and told again. The awful, lingering, living death. Always the same word, immured. The methods of the witch hunters and inquisitors were simple. Some poor wretch is accused of witchcraft, sometimes by a jealous neighbor or a peevish child. The victim is arrested, stripped naked, and searched for devil marks. Any birthmark or blemish of the skin is accepted as evidence that they have surely made a, a pact with Satan. If none is found, the poor witch is stuck with needles to find an insensitive spot, further proof of witchcraft. She is then thrown into a dungeon while the inquisitors gleefully go to work inventing a long and detailed list of fantastic charges. Their imagination runs wild. The judge may include anything that titillates his lurid and perverse imagination. Lewd practices are invented, fornication with the devil, child sacrifice, feasts of rotting human flesh. When this gruesome accusation has been drawn up, the witches dragged before the court and ordered to confess everything. Usually she refuses. She is then ordered, put to the torture, to persuade her to change her mind. Eventually, after the most savage, cruel, and barbaric torments, the tearing of her flesh with pincers, her body broken on the wheel, her fingernails ripped off, her feet thrust into a fire, Whatever horrors the twisted mind of the hangman could devise, she is ready to confess anything her tormentors demand of her. In her crazed delirium of pain and fear, she will often invent new crimes, new horrors of depravity to confess. And having confessed she is guilty, sometimes she is tortured again for her own good, to purify her soul before she is put to death. She may be beheaded, garroted, hanged, or immured, but usually she is burned alive at the stake. The tortures are unbelievably grotesque in their savage ingenuity. One continental favorite was the strapado. The victim's hands are tied behind her back. The rope is thrown over a pulley and she is hoisted up to the ceiling. Now heavy weights are attached to her feet, 50, 100, 200 pounds, until her arms are wrenched out of her sockets and she dangles screaming that she is ready to confess anything they want. 
In England, milder forms were used. The witch was usually stripped naked, bound with chains in some agonizing position, and left on a cold stone without food for as many days and nights as it took for her to come to her senses, which was usually a kind of delirious madness. One Scottish specialty was to make the prisoner wear a hair shirt steeped in vinegar. When it was removed, it pulled the skin off of the victim's body. The torture of the thumbscrew was simple in comparison. The victim's fingers were put in an iron vice. This was tightened by degrees until the bones cracked, the blood and marrow spurting out in great profusion. Uh, finally, there was the torment of the dreaded Spanish boot, said to be the most severe and cruel pain in the world. These were jointed iron boots, like a giant thumb screw to fit the feet. It was tightened with screws until the feet were crushed by slow degrees, until they were a bloody pulp, useless forever. Perhaps all these ghastly tales frighten you just a little, do they? Perhaps you've had enough of witchcraft and magic already. Would you rather flee back to the safe, rational world of solid scientific facts, the world of concrete, of computers, of profit and loss, of smog and supermarkets? <laughs> How dull. I'm disappointed in you. Think of what you'll be missing in the other unfathomable world of the unknown, the magic regions of the mind, the invisible dominion of spirits, which is just as real and in the end much, much more important. Or do you feel the ineffable, inexorable pull of the unknown? Do you long to undertake the greatest adventure of all? among the invisible forces to learn the ancient secrets of the old religion. Perhaps even to cast a few simple spells yourself. To invoke a spirit or two. Do you have the heart for it? Well, that's good. I'm glad. I thought you would. So now, let's get down to work. We have much studying to do. There are many ancient mystic texts to guide us. First, you must know that the best time for magic is always at the dead of night, when the earth grows silent, cold, when vapors rise and the human heart beats slow, and we come a little closer to death. When the atmosphere is clear and empty and the spirits can move freely, for they say that wandering demons bold and joyful in the darkness of the night are terrified by cockcrow, and in their fear they fade away. As for the place of magic circles, when you wish to come in contact with the unseen forces, it should be chosen with melancholy, doleful, dark and lonely, in woods or deserted places, or among ruins of castles, abbeys, monasteries. Abandoned mines or forsaken houses, mountains, caves, swamps, the borders of lakes or upon the seashore when the moon shines clear, or else in a lonely, unfrequented chamber 
hung with black, and the floor covered with the same, with doors and windows closely shut and waxen candles lighted. But best of all are crossroads where four roads meet, for they have long been recognized for their special affinity to magic, beloved of spirits and demons, because for centuries it was always at the meeting of the ways that murderers and thieves were hanged to dangle there a feast for flies until the flesh fell from the bones as a warning to others who passed by. The Heptameron, a 13th century manual of magic, advises the magician thus, and let him be observed by no one, and let him consecrate this spot and exorcise it, and let him have in this spot either a table or a little altar covered with pure white linen facing the east, and on two sides two lighted candles of pure wax, burning continuously, wear a long robe of white linen, closed in front and behind to cover you to your feet, girt with a girdle. On your head, place a band or ribbon on which will be inscribed the name of the Tetragrammaton. Some authorities say the robes worn for magic should be black, others say red. But red, black, or white, it doesn't matter, provided they are loose and reach to the floor. Also, the magician must be naked under the robe with no undergarments whatsoever, and this robe must never be worn at any other time, being reserved exclusively for the rites of magic. The feet must always be bare, the head also, except that the ribbon or headband may be worn inscribed with such magic words and magic names as you may choose. Never attempt to communicate with the unseen forces unless you are suitably attired, for they may take offense and harm you. The only other way that magic rites may be performed is nude, a very common practice among witches, and looked upon with great favor by sympathetic spirits and by Satan, so they say. But be careful when you stand naked before the spirits of the night you must have upon your person somewhere a talisman to protect you. This is of the greatest importance to your safety. The implements of magic include all of the following. First, the magic wand or staff, the ancient symbol of the virile member of authority and power. This is by far the most potent and important implement of magic, common to wizards, sorcerers, warlocks, and witches, essential to control nature, the elements, the beings of darkness, and the disembodied forces of the outer world. The wand is used for tracing the circle in which the magician must enclose himself to call upon the spirits. In fact, it would be extremely hazardous and rash to attempt any form of necromantic conjuration without the power and protection of the enchanted wand. It must be of wild hazel, often called filbert, from a virgin tree which has not borne fruit, or another wild nut tree, or of willow or birch, cut with a new knife which has never been used. The two great magic signs must be carved upon it, the pentacle or five-pointed star and the magic hexagram, the six-pointed star, the seal of Solomon. 
Then you must incise the three mystic names, Alga, Arm, Tetragrammaton, and then the Maltese cross. On the other side, engrave the words Ego, Alpha, and Omega. When this is finished, you must take the wand to a wild place at midnight and plant it upright in the earth between two new wax candles burning in new candlesticks. Appropriately robed or nude, you must stand and gaze upon the wand with all the concentrated force of your inner being until you feel the presence of the great powers. The force of nature will flow up out of the earth to join the force of the heavens flowing down from the ether to gather and unite in the wand. Then pronounce this invocation in a low, even voice with great conviction. In the ancient sacred names of Hecate, goddess of witches and sorcerers, who is Selene, the moon in heaven, Artemis, the huntress on earth, Persephone, queen of hell, in the name of Astaroth, goddess of lust and fertility, Asnos, Asnos, in the most holy and terrible names of Osiris, Isis, Ra, Ego, Alpha, Omega, Alga, An, Tetragrammaton, in the name of Lilith, the succuba, first bride of Adam and mother of all the demons, I call the power of Adonai and all the great and terrible spirits upon this virgin wand of Hazel that from the birth of the new day shall be potent in magic. Bagabi, Laka, Bashabi, Lamak, Kahi, Ashababi. Now take thirteen steps backwards and leave the place without looking back. You must then return at sunrise and to complete and seal the consecration say, Most pure angels, be guardians of this my instrument, for it shall be needed for many things. Having uttered this, turn the two candles upside down, crushing them to the earth to extinguish them. You must now take up the wand which contains all the power you shall require and leave that place never to return there again, ever. You will also need the arthami, the magic knife used in the rituals and all kinds of magic, and in carving magic words, mystic names, signs, and cryptograms upon the wand and for other purposes. This must be new of the finest tempered steel with a handle of wood or bone. Then you must have a censer or incense burner and a charcoal burner. This must be any suitable vessel of earth or metal, large or small, and must stand upon three legs, or on a tripod, or any base of three, the magic number. Then you must have candles of pure virgin wax, candlesticks of mineral composition, china, clay, metal or glass, incense, perfumes, charcoal, brandy, sulfur, leaves of the laurel tree, which are also called bay leaves. All instruments, all objects to be handled by the witch or magician must be new, never before used for any purpose, or specially and freshly made at dead of night by the light of the moon in a desolate spot in utter solitude. Each time they are used anew, they must be cleansed with salted water and at other times kept wrapped in fresh white linen. 
Now you should also have some creature, a cat, a dog, a frog, or a toad, a rabbit, a bat, a goat, a snake, or a mouse that is your familiar. I cannot tell you where you will find this creature, but the spirits will send it to you when you are ready, and they will make you know that this is your familiar spirit. Keep and guard it well. You must choose the name of your familiar spirit. Such have been Gill, Holt, Wigan, Satham, Suck, and Sugar, Pluck, Catch, White, Grisil, Grigat, or Vinegar Tom. The witch must also possess the magic bloodstone, also called the spotted heliotrope. It is found in India and Scotland and can readily be obtained from any merchant trafficking in gems and precious metals. Throughout the ages, many sorcerers and witches have found other stones efficacious in magic, among them the garnet, the ruby, the onyx, and the opal, and sometimes certain lustrous and enchanted pebbles which do not have a name and which the person who possessed them came upon by chance or were drawn and led to them by a force outside of themselves. The witch or magician must never part from this bloodstone, keeping it on his person, next to his skin, waking and sleeping always. Usually a tiny sack of linen or of animal or reptile skin is used to contain it, hung around the neck or loins of the witch. This sack must be inscribed with the witch's name and the pentacle written in the witch's own blood, which is obtained by pricking the finger with a needle. You must never part from this stone, for it is also a talisman, excepting that you may give it to another witch who gives you her bloodstone in exchange. But when this is done, the inscriptions must be done anew, each witch using her own blood to write the other's name. From then on, you are mystic sisters, and the magic of your bloodstones increase threefold. Peculiar to witches, as distinct from sorcerers and wizards, is the traditional cauldron which is owned by every witch. This is a round vessel with a narrow opening, the symbol of the womb. It must be strong and durable, able to withstand fire and freezing chill. The material must come from earth, the mother. It can be stoneware or fired clay, but certain metals are considered better, among them iron, brass, or bronze. When it is used to boil mixtures and concoctions of magic ingredients, it must be supported by a tripod, three stones, or any three-cornered base. And the fire must be of charcoal or dead sticks from natural trees gathered by the witch herself at dead of night. The best wood for the cauldron fire is found in deserted, gloomy places, graveyards, ruins, crossroads, and in olden times, little twigs to be found around the foot of a gibbet where a felon had been hanged, the noxious liquids from his putrefying corpse having dropped upon the earth, where they say no grass or sweet flowers, but only the most rank and poisonous herbs and weeds would grow. Now you have some knowledge of the basic paraphernalia and implements of magic, shall we proceed 
Are you eager to learn the steps that must be taken to communicate with the spirits to bring the unseen forces to bear on your behalf? Perhaps to evoke an ancient god or one of the legions of greater and lesser demons who are everywhere? 7,405,926, according to the Talmud. I don't think you have to fear being put to the torture I doubt that you'll have to face the appalling, unholy terror and horror of the impacha, walled up, sealed alive in a tomb, to await in utter hopeless, abandoned terror the suffocating, lingering death of starvation and madness, clawing at the pitiless stone in unimaginable darkness. <laughs> You're so lucky. Aren't you glad? <laughs> But there, I, I don't mean to frighten you, but I must warn you, the evocation of a demon is not to be taken lightly. There are dangers if you are careless or frivolous. It's not so easy a business as some idle and curious amateurs might suppose. First, you must know that nothing can be done to evoke spirits without a circle. The mystic magic circle, symbol of eternity without beginning and without end. Anyone who enters into communication with demons must be enclosed in the magic circle under penalty of certain death. Then there should be the magical five-pointed star, the pentacle, which acts as a protection, and the hexagram, the six-pointed figure consisting of two interwoven triangles having the power to control demons. Now that you have your magic circle, you must consecrate it. Some medieval magicians again recommend this simple form. Stand outside the circle, wave the magic wand over it, and say in a great voice, Ban, ban, barrier that none can pass, barrier of the gods that none may break, barrier of heaven and earth that none can change, which no god can annul. I personally favor that particular dedication because it has such a nice ring to it, don't you think? No demon could miss the point. Yes, that's my very personal favorite, but if you prefer something more mysterious and exotic, there are many efficacious formulae in Hebrew, Greek, Latin, ancient Egyptian, Assyrian, and Persian. Use the one that makes you feel most confident. That's the important thing. The one that kindles magic in your heart. For if you doubt yourself and tremble, the demons will know it and attack you. Perhaps you'd feel safer with a less ancient formula. Hmm? Something a little more up to date? Well, that's easy. I'll give you the procedure that one of the most pleasant present-day English witches recommends. <laughs> oh, she's a darling. <laughs> She tells us that first a triple circle must be drawn on the floor using the arafami, then it should be marked with salt or charcoal. Each circle must be six inches smaller than the one surrounding it. The outside circle is then divided into the points of the compass, north, south, east, and west. Starting at the east, you should write the Hebrew word agja. Then in the west, the word Sabaoth, and in the north, Adabi, and in the south, Javeh. Next, draw the pentacle inside the circle. 
Place a brazier of burning charcoal at the eastern point of the smaller circle. Now draw a triangle outside the circle to the east. Place the altar, which can be a small table draped with white linen, in the center of the circle. On the altar, you will lay out the implements of magic as follows. A brass water sprinkler filled with pure water from a spring or brook in which you have dissolved salt. Bottle spring water being pure, well, it's acceptable for this. The salt must also be absolutely pure. Pure sodium chloride. Unadulterated with other substances, such as alumates, dextrose, and potassium iodides found in most commercially manufactured table salt. Pure rock salt is excellent and easily obtainable. Also salt extracted from seawater by evaporation. Best of all is salt evaporated from the tears and sweat of a woman, preferably the witch herself. Then there is the censer, the athami, a hazel wand, and a sword. Each tool must be ceremonially cleaned, sprinkled with the salted water, and wrapped in white linen. Now set lighted candles around the largest circle and upon the altar. The ritual commences. Various conjurations are offered to the spirits to keep the circle safe from evil. Next you will throw incense on the brazier and speak certain words of power to summon the spirit. The spirit will appear in the triangle you have drawn outside the circle. Can't you just picture this cheerful, ruddy-faced little English lady <laughs> dressed in baggy homespun tweeds and good stout walking shoes, her grey streaked hair twisted up in an untidy bun, bustling about the village doing her shopping, having tea with a vicar, a white-haired old clergyman in a dog collar and gaiters, while the village mechanic changes the oil and adjusts the timing in her ancient jalopy. The putt-putting home along winding country lanes to the isolated ivory-covered house where she'll gather a few sprigs of parsley and some mint and a little deadly nightshade from her herb garden, putting out a saucer of milk and a dish of fresh live tadpoles for her one-eyed tomcat, Beelzebub, hurrying with her own supper of cottage cheese, peas and carrots and chamomile tea, so as to be sure of being ready when two of her witch friends come over at midnight. As the church clock strikes twelve, they shed their tweeds, don their witch's robes, turn off the electricity at the main so as not to disturb the spirits, then disconnect the telephone, light the candles in what they call the black parlor and busily start drawing their circles and triangles in preparation for a night to be spent conjuring spirits, working on getting rid of the wart on Mrs. Weatherby's nose, or perhaps even cursing the manager of the Northumberland and Newcastle Bank, who has threatened to foreclose the mortgage on Briarheath Manor and force poor Sir Gerald to sell the old deer park to make way for some dreadful housing project for the workers at the Chittenden chemical plant. Of course, all witches are not old. Some are young and beautiful, voluptuous, seductive women, or undeveloped adolescent girls, even children. 
Reginald Scott, a member of Parliament born in 1538, wrote a book. Let me quote. Witches, he says, are commonly old, lame, blear-eyed, pale, foul, and full of wrinkles. They are doting scolds, mad, devilish. <laughs> All this means is that Mr. Scott was a spiteful old man with no imagination, a timid, mediocre fool who didn't like witches. If he had taken the trouble to visit the Leipzig Museum of Fine Art before making this stupid prejudice statement, he would have seen a magnificent painting of a witch preparing a filter. She is naked, young, tall, slender, and beautiful, with long golden hair and small, round breasts. There are plenty of cases of young and beautiful girls being burned for witchcraft. On the official hangman's list of a famous German witchcraft trial, Barbara Goebel, one of the victims, was described as 19 and the fairest maid in Würzburg. Also on the same list were a wizard of 11, a schoolboy, and a witch of 15. A death list from France includes two sorceresses of 17. <laughs> Damnably pretty. Revenge, spite, and jealousy were often behind accusations of witchcraft. Dame Alice is rich. She must be a witch. Mistress Moland is pretty. Witch, witch. Oh, it's such a pity. But I'm getting off the subject. I'm sorry. But there are so many fascinating tales to tell you. Well, let's see now. Where were we? Oh, yes. Mm, let me see. Now, you have your implements, and you have your magic circle. Good. Shall we proceed? But remember that magic is not for the faint-hearted. You can't be too careful when dealing with demons. And you wouldn't want to spend eternity in the fires of hell now, would you? <laughs> so hard. You stand there in your robes, armed with your wand, your bloodstone, and all your implements of magic. But be sure you have no base metal on your person, only gold and silver to throw at the spirits if the need arises. The brazier is burning. Sprinkle a pinch of incense on it. Then a pinch of sulfur and a few drops of brandy. Good brandy, please. As the flames leap up, pronounce these words. I offer you, O Adonai, this purest incense as I offer this charcoal made of lightest wood. I offer it, O great and potent Adonai, Ilium, Ariel, and Jehovah, with all my soul and all my heart. Deign, O mighty Adonai, to accept it favorably. Now you can be sure you have the great almighty God, whatever his mystic name may be, firmly on your side. It is time to summon now the evil spirits. Have you scrupulously performed all that is required? Have you? Now, all right. Then begin to recite the following conjuration with confidence and assurance. I invoke and command thee, O cursed spirits, Bail, Batim, Agares, Marbas, Pursan, Abigar, Amon, Botis, Valafa, Nuberus, Glasibolas. Come here to this place, instanter, 
appear immediately in human form, well-shaped in body and soul, and comply with my commands without deception of whatever, whatsoever kind. Come then in visible form and speak pleasantly, so that I may understand thy words. Come in the name of Iod, Elioim, El, Elion Gibor, Vadath, Eladonai, Tzaboth, Elohim, Tzaboth, Shadi. If thou dost not come or disobey me in any way, I will curse thee and will cause thee to be consigned to the bottomless pit where thou wilt remain until the day of judgment. Come then, appear before this circle to obey me utterly. Come in the name of Adonai. Stand firm. Control your fears. One sign of fright and weakness and they'll set upon you. Giant toads. A two-legged rabbit hopping horribly. Beware, there's an Ethiopian giant jetting fire through his eyes with a darting tongue of flame nine inches long. A three-headed cat. Look out. Snakes are gliding under the skirts of your robes, coiling around your legs. Blast them hence with your magic wand. Be gone! You feel an invisible force pressing upon you? Exercise it. Be gone and banish, spirit of fear. I blast thee from this hallowed circle, a sanctuary, a place made safe. Shrink to nothing as I shrink the foul name. A shabriri, briri, riri, iri, ri, oshnotinos, shlotinos, notinos, dino, inos, nos, os. They are at bay, but they are ominous, imminent. There lurks a scaly dog without a tail, slimy green with yellow eyes, decapods and scorpions, cirripedes, scurrying mice. There a fantastic holothurian with a grinning head, a mictire with multiple claws, a rabid monkey with a cudgel, Toothless hag, slithering reptilian on her belly. Take care. A beautiful dark-eyed girl, slinking seductively, smooth and voluptuous with silky hair and softly sloping flanks. She smiles. The smile of the succubus, salacious, her mouth. The awful, gaping, crimson mouth of hell. Foul, toothless, spitting blood. There slithers now a monstrous slimy snake with the face of a newborn babe. Indescribable monsters with outspread fins. Bristling spikes like pterodactyls, spondylus, hogfish, flying crab beetles, disembodied bloodied heads, crawling like centipedes, bloated babies, branchiopods, triangular, horrible reptiles. Porcupine scorpions, lizard cats, vampire bats, mocking imagination, flying red-eyed rats, fish-headed hunchback, groveling, grotesque, prancing, dancing, lovely, bloody, ghastly girls, hopping, throwing filth, a beautiful baboon in royal robes, lapping, flagellating, monstrous, diabolical, obscene, anonymous bosch, sulfurous, putrid, livid, gangrenous, vaporous, phosphorescent enormity,
Now you command these awful spirits to do what you desire. Perhaps to reveal a secret, to foretell the future, to lead you to some secret hiding place. Perhaps you command them to torment an enemy or help a friend or to enchant the person whose love you passionately desire. Sometimes a host of fiendish, unruly demons will appear in hideous, visible form, as you have just experienced. But sometimes only one or two spirits will appear, perhaps grotesque, or if you're lucky, in a reasonably agreeable form. At other times you may only see a shadowy shape, or perhaps a bird, or a spider, or a bat. Spirits frequently appear as large buzzing flies, and sometimes you cannot see them at all, but you can only feel their presence. They're capricious. Their actions can never be anticipated with certainty. It depends to some extent upon the form of ritual used and the names of the spirits you call on to appear. As I've said, the most powerful conjurations carry the greatest peril, <laughs> but that's only natural. The prudent novice in the art of conjuration will pick the spirits he wishes to summon with care and discretion. A few years ago, an undergraduate at Cambridge University, a man named Gerald York, decided to experiment with necromancy. Well, after considerable study, he collected the necessary equipment and scrupulously following instructions, he worked on summoning Thoth, an ancient Egyptian god of wisdom and inspiration. He drew the circles, inscribed them, and intoned the magic formulae in his rooms at night. And then, to his great surprise, Thoth came. Other students who helped with the ritual saw him also, plainly and indisputably. Throughout the ages, many people have been driven by some obsession, sometimes by desperation, ambition, greed, malice, revenge, lust, or passion to carry this business to the ultimate, irrevocable, abominable extreme, a formal pact with the devil. Of course, you should never resort to this except in the case of the most dire necessity. <laughs> but who knows? I'll... Uh, well, I'll tell you how it's done, just in case. The scene must be a place where nobody can disturb you. A hut, a ruin, a desolate heath, a crossroad, an attic, a cellar, or some secluded chamber. You make the usual preparations, a hazel wand, a knife, a bloodstone. Candles flicker, the charcoal glows, the perfumed smoke of incense drifts around you. Sulfur and brandy hiss and burn, and you begin to recite the invocation in a strong voice, without fear or hesitation. Emperor, Lucifer, master of all the rebellious spirits, I beseech thee to be favorable to me in this conjuration I make upon thy great minister, Lucifugi Rofocali, as I desire to make a, a pact with him. I beg thee also, Prince Beelzebub, Lord of the Flies, to protect me in this undertaking. O Count Ashtoreth, favor me and cause that this very night the great Lucifugi appear unto me in human form without any evil smell or, or foul effluvium. 
and that he shall grant me by means of the pact that I shall deliver to him whatever I shall ask of him, O great Lucifuge. I beseech thee to leave thy dwelling in whatever region it may be and come to this place and speak with me. Appear then instantly or I shall torment you continually forever and ever. Now the candles fade and flicker and go out. A chill wind forces itself upon you. You feel the presence of death. Now you say, Come, Lord of blackness, Lord of power, Lord of death, approach, I command thee. Lucifuge, Rofakal appears. The spirit replies, I cannot grant thy demand, but on condition that thou givest me thyself at the end of twenty years, so that I shall do with thee, body and soul, whatsoever shall please me. This is the solemn and terrible moment. The supreme decision must be taken. Throw him your pact, which must be written in your own hand on a small piece of virgin parchment. It should consist of these few words and be signed with your veritable blood. Pact. I promise great Lucifuge to repay him in twenty years for all he shall give me. In witness whereof I have signed X in my blood. And how you are damned. Perhaps you're interested in present-day witchcraft. More interested, say, than in the old, old witchcraft. Do you think you might like to join a coven of witches? <laughs> it's possible, you know. But they have rather strict rules. Let me tell you a little bit about them. Hmm? Now, most modern covens consist of 13 witches. They choose their members very carefully. First, you will be questioned. Do you believe in reincarnation? Do you believe that witchcraft, the old religion, is the true religion? The high priestess will probe your psychic consciousness, looking for signs of unusual powers or perception, perhaps clairvoyance. She will read your vibrations assess your aura. If she accepts you, you must study for 13 months. If you pass your tests and are accepted, you must prepare for the rites of initiation. The witches gather on a night that has been chosen by consulting the stars. A large circle is drawn on the ground with a magic knife and marked with chalk. The altar is placed in the center with the magic implements on it. Candles flicker upon the altar, incense rises and perfume swells. There is the vessel of salted water, a white cord symbolizing unity, and a scourge, a whip, symbol of purification. The priestess sprinkles water in the circle and upon the instruments as she chants an invocation, calling on the ancient gods of north, south, west, and east. You stand outside the magic circle, waiting as the witches watch. The coven leader blindfolds you. She takes the magic knife and places its point on your heart. You feel the prick of cold steel. You hear her voice. It would be better to die than to join this coven of the old religion with fear or doubt in your heart, she says. And you, you give the ritual answer. Perfect love and perfect trust. Now hands lead you into the circle. 
The priestess seals the circle behind you with a gesture of the arthami. Now your hands are being bound with the cord. You are made to kneel before the altar and your feet are also bound tightly together. Are you ready to swear that you will be true always to the art? The high priestess voice asks imperiously. Yes, I am, I swear it. First you must be purified. The high priestess is taking up the whip. You wait tense in anticipation. Then she strikes you three times. The pain stabs through your body, from your toes to your fingertips. Now seven more strokes, then nine, then twenty-one. But you bear it gladly. You welcome it with a strange exultation, exalted, a, a spiritual cleansing, a, a pure sense of triumph and freedom of the spirit. Now your head is anointed with oil, wine, and sprinkled with salted water. You feel a pair of lips pressed to yours, the ritual kiss of the high priestess. Then you are kissed by each of the witches present in turn. Now your hands and feet are unbound. You look around you with new eyes as all the witches sit together with you in a circle to partake of a symbolic meal of cakes and wine. Now you will take the great oath as follows. I swear upon my mother's womb that I will never reveal any of the secrets of the art and that I will be faithful to the art forsaking all other faiths. This I swear by my past lives and my hopes of future lives to come and I devote myself to utter destruction of the spirit forever if I break this, my solemn oath. Now the high priestess lights a new candle. She waves the wand to each point of the compass. Now you take the lighted candle in your right hand and swinging the censer with your left, walk slowly around the circle. Now the high priestess presents you with the cord. You must bind her with this cord as you were bound and you must scourge her as you were scourged, giving her three times as many strokes as you received. Finally, you are presented to the mighty spirits in the four quarters of the compass and the dismissal is pronounced. O oh, great spirits of fire and water, spirits of the north, the south, the east and west, whose names are secret, spirits of the unseen worlds, we thank you for thy presence in this place and for accepting this, our sister, into the mysteries of the craft. And thanking thee, we ask thee now to depart. Your initiation, your first initiation, is now complete. Later you will be initiated into the second degree of witchcraft. This ritual will be much like the first, except that your eyes will not be covered when you are led, bound as before, into the circle. Much later, when you are prepared, you will receive your third and final initiation into the craft. The ritual commences as before, the circles, the invocations, and then when the time comes, all the witches present remove their robes as a sign of equality and freedom, a physical and mental freedom which is believed to be inseparable from nakedness. Now you are bound. You step into the circle and kneel before the altar to be scourged. After the scourging, you are blindfolded as you were the first time. Your hands and feet are loosed and you lie on your back in the circle, extending your limbs to the point of the compass. Further invocations are in tone. Then there follows a sexual rite performed 
by you with a person of the other sex, one of those present, but which one will never be revealed to you. <laughs> this is the most sacred act of devotion and atonement with the ancient gods of nature, of fertility. It is the ultimate giving of yourself to the faith in body and spirit, to the life force of the universe. The physical act of love, divorced from emotional attachments and personal feelings, has been a religious rite since humanity's earliest beginnings. Witches believe it to be a profoundly mystic act of communion, and they believe there is an inherent invisible energy like electricity in the human body, which is sexual energy, part of the universal cosmic forces, the raising and controlling of which is the whole basis of witchcraft. And because this life force reaches for a fleeting moment an otherwise unattainable degree of brilliance and concentration during the sexual act, they regard the act itself as sacred. Thrice the blinded cat hath mewed. Thrice and once the hedge pig whined. Harpier cries, tis time, tis time. Round about the cauldron go, in the poisoned entrails throw. Toad under cold stone days and nights has thirty-one sweltered venom sleeping got. Boil thou first in the charmed pot. Double, double, double toil and trouble. Fire burn and cauldron bubble. It with a baboon's blood, then the charm is firm and good. <laughs> well, for Hecate's sake, <laughs> that's a grisly charm indeed. Would you like to try it? <laughs> no, I don't suppose you would. And witches aren't really like that anyhow, at least not the witches I know. But perhaps you'd like to learn a few real, authentic spells and charms that you yourself can work. Guaranteed effective. <laughs> ah, that's good. I hoped you would. So gather round and listen carefully. First, let's talk about um, curses, shall we? Curses can be simple word magic, but their incantations are feared, their implications dreaded and rightly so. They circle and spiral and penetrate the mind, wrestling with the soul, strangling the spirit. You can hear them, terrible words of power. May the devil tear you crosswise. May fire from heaven strike you dead. May your bones seep with lime and decay, and your cries of agony <laughs> meet with jeers. <laughs> Charming, aren't they? In casting spells and curses, there are certain things you must know. First, names are of the greatest importance. The power of any curse or spell is increased nine times by the use of a person's name. When you can, always use his true name, his full name, not a nickname. For example, suppose you hated and wished to curse a man named Abel. Well, you might use this ancient and potent invocation. Hmm? 
evil, cruel, and pitiless spirit who crouches in the graveyard waiting to destroy life. Go and tie a knot in Abel's head, in his eyes, in his mouth, in his tongue, in his throat, in his gullet. Go quickly to Abel and put poisonous water in his belly and kill Abel, for I wish him dead. Amen, amen, amen. Certain numbers have great magical powers. The number three is paramount. Odd numbers are lucky, even numbers unlucky. But beware of number one. This is equated with the primal chaos. And when you use it, you can turn the fury of your curse upon yourself. And of course you must understand something of the mysteries of herbs. Foremost among herbs with special magical properties are various deadly poisons. The best of all is belladonna or deadly nightshade. <laughs> I love that name. Deadly nightshade. <laughs> then there's cowbane, a venomous family of herbs including hemlock and hog fennel, abundant in swamps and marshes all over America. Just there for the gathering. Chinquaforel, various common plants of the rose family, including silverweed, which grows in profusion. Aconite or monksweed, which is the same as the common buttercup, contains violent poisons and has been used in witchcraft for many centuries. Many magic recipes call for sumac, which is the same as poison oak or poison ivy. In fact, you can use this in any potion requiring a poisonous plant. Other valuable botanicals include laurel or bay leaves, chickweed, veronica, the wild water parsnip or marshwort, hemp, the common acorn, lugwort, figwort, liverwort, spearwort, <laughs> verbena, hepatica, chamomile, the sacred magic mushrooms, various cacti. Perhaps you'd better buy a book of herb lore and study it. It'll be well worth your while, you future witches. <laughs> oh, I can promise you that. And another thing, in casting spells, charms, and curses, you must master total concentration, a rigid discipline of your will, an overpowering determination and complete faith in your powers. Well, <laughs> my... Little bane caught in my throat. <laughs> oh, just a little old figwort. But let's proceed with some formula, shall we? Are you in the mood for a few more nasty little curses, say? Well, you never know when they're going to come in handy. You would like to hear some? Well, fine. Here's an excellent one. Designed to be especially effective in cursing an unfaithful lover. Hmm. Go forth, O oh demons, from the city of fire and take residence in a heart that lusts. And here you should name your faithless lover. And lodge your spiny bodies in the bowels and vital organs of this decadent soul and cripple him or her so that he or she can never again be untrue to me or any other and subject him or her forever to the torments of the dead. <laughs> Many of the most effective and time-honored methods of bewitching a man to death call for combining your verbal curses with the destruction of a little figure or doll representing that person. How about a few more cheerful spells, hmm? Perhaps you want to make someone fall in love with you. Now, that's cheery. <laughs> ah, with magic to help you, that's easy to achieve. 
Fashion the likeness of the one you wish to bewitch in wax, making it fair and beautiful naturally. Be sure to use in its making something from the body of the beloved, hmm? a few hairs, nail clippings, or anoint it with a drop of their blood, if you happen to have it, or a sample of their sweat, both particularly efficacious in magic. Then take a piece of fabric from some intimate garment stolen from your love and dress the doll in it. Each night at midnight on three successive nights during the full moon, take the image to a lonely place, raise it to the moon, and say these words thrice. The spirits of the night will make this person, and here of course you must mention their name, will make this person ready for me in body and in mind. Then the following night you will go to your love and he will be unable to resist you. Do you believe it? I do. Oh yes, there are many love charms you can use. Here's a formula that never fails. When the night is soft and the winds are ripe with the scent of sweet flesh, Pluck the most crimson rose from the garden and place the dew-fresh petals in a five-pointed star beneath the window of your beloved. Now whisper her name or his name to the night wind three times. Say nothing more. Love will be sealed between you unto death and beyond. In immortality you will be one and the same in heart and spirit. The medieval true grimoire gives a detailed formula for uh, <laughs> seducing a girl. Preparations are made during the waxing moon. Write in your blood the girl's name on a piece of virgin parchment. Draw a magic circle in the usual way, and at midnight, holding a lighted taper, Invoke the spirits as follows. I salute and conjure thee, O beautiful moon. I conjure thee so that you may send down power to oppress, torture, and harass the body and soul and the five senses of, and here you use the name of the victim, shall we say, Angela de' Medici, hmm? she whose name is written here in my blood, so that she shall have no choice but to come unto me and submit to my desires. For so long as she shall remain unmoved by me, let her be tortured and made to suffer. <laughs> oh, that's a good one. If you prefer the love potion, you can get good results from this one. Take yellow rose petals, carrot roots, belladonna, a poisonous plant, soot, and pure water from a stream. Brew these ingredients with wine in a pot and give the liquor to your love to drink. <laughs> Candy is dandy, but liquor is quicker. Methinks she should die of love for you after swallowing that, or she must love you very much to accept it in the first place, <laughs> or she might just die. Perhaps you have reason to doubt your girlfriend's um, chastity. Well, if you do, try this. Find a stone called the lodestone of a pale blue color, which is found in the Indies in part of Germany or on the coast of France. Lay this stone under the head of the girl, and if she is faithful to you, she will rise up and kiss you. But if she is unfaithful, she will fall out of bed? 
It has always been recognized by the wise that to make a woman chaste and faithful is the hardest thing in all the world to do. But if the object of your love is married to another, it is not impossible to separate them. You must write the names of the victims on a new laid egg while standing in a graveyard when there is no moon. Then to intone the following invocation, I conjure you, O luminaries of heaven and earth, as the heavens are separated from the earth, so separate and divide Jonathan Hubbard and his wife Abigail in the name of the twelve hours of the day and the three watches of the night and the seven days of the week and the thirty days of the month and the seven years of Shemitah and the fifty years of Jubilee on every day in the name of the evil angel Imshmael who preside over pain, inflammation and dropsy. Now, break the egg and eat it raw. Ooh. Well, when that's done, prepare to cast a love charm upon Jonathan or Abigail, as the case may be. Thus, your objective will be obtained. <laughs> it's much simpler than a divorce. So, those are some of the magic secrets of love and eroticism. But I wonder, should I tell you the greatest secret of them all? Hmm? Well, yes, I've gone this far. I suppose I should. But this is for the ears of females only. If there is a man at your side, send him away, for he should not know this. What every young girl should know. In all the history of witchcraft and magic, since how many thousands of years we cannot know, there is another charm, the most antique and efficacious of them all, compounded of fire, pain, and passion, used by women throughout the ages to enmesh the hearts of men and enslave them in the web of love forever, and used by some who know its power today. It is the magic cake. It is also called the Conferiatio, which from furthest Asia to Europe and the New World has ever been the sacrament of love. Its purpose is to bind not only the soul but also the flesh, so that dead to all other women... The man shall live and breathe for this one only. It is no trifling matter, girls. <laughs> the woman cannot perform this magic alone. She must have the help of another woman, a witch. The witch strips the suppliant to the skin. She must then lie naked on her back with candles burning. The witch now lays a wooden board upon the woman's loins, and on that a small brazier of burning charcoal with a miniature oven. In this she bakes the magic cake. The dough is made much like any other of flour or meal, butter, eggs, milk, sweetened with honey. But this cake must also contain a few drops of the woman's blood. As the cake is baking, the woman may cry out that she can bear no more. But it must be so. The cake is cooking baking in the hot flame of her passion. When it is done, she has the magic cake of antiquity, of Hindu and ancient Roman marriage rites, seasoned and hotly spiced with the passion and anguish of her loins. She will now take the cake to the man she loves and give it as a gift for him to eat before her eyes. At the first bite, she feels a strange tumult of the senses, a giddiness. 
His heart beats faster. His blood rises and grows hot. His face is flushed with blushes and his body burns. He is seized by the madness we call love and a raging, inextinguishable desire rises in him that will burn each time he looks upon this woman until the day he dies. Of course, there are magic charms and spells for every purpose, for good and evil, attack and defense to counteract and nullify other charms. An old English charm used for centuries as a defense against maleficent witchcraft covers any kind of curse or evil charm. Listen to this. Black luggy, hammerhead, rowan tree and red thread, put the warlocks to their speed. Now the witch's spell is dead. Before we leave the mysterious secret world of charms and spells in which anything is possible, we must dwell for a moment on a certain, shall we say, unsavory item in the witch's magic armory in olden times, the hand of glory. Are you familiar with this deadly and terrifying talisman of death? Well, you should be. At one time, they say, no witch would think of being without one. It was usually kept on the mantle above the chimney piece, along with other grisly relics and paraphernalia of magic. What is it? Well, let me tell you. According to a medieval instruction, in order to prepare the hand of glory, you must go to a gallows beside a highway and cut off the right hand of a felon who is hanging there. Wrap the severed hand in a shroud and squeeze it out as dry as you can. Then put it into an earthen jar with a powder composed of salt, saltpeter, and hot peppers. Leave it in the pot for two weeks. Then take it out and place it in the hot sun during the dog days until it becomes quite dry. In this hand, you will then place a candle using the hand as a candlestick. You will make the candle of virgin wax, sesame, and the fat of a gibbeted fella. When the candle is lit and carried in the hand of glory, it will stupefy anyone you meet with terrible magic and render them motionless, thus incapable of resisting your will at all. As the ancient verses go, wherever that terrible light shall burn, vainly the sleeper may toss and turn, his leaden eyes shall ne'er unclose so long as that magical taper glows. Life and treasure shall he command, who knoweth the charm of the glorious hand. Blasted 
strange tingling in your body? Do you feel a pricking of your thumbs? For that's a sure and certain sign that the time to go to the Sabbath has come. The Sabbath, the great ceremonial gathering of witches, a wild revelry at dead of night in some lonely, desolate spot, a heath, a forest clearing, or some forbidding, craggy mountaintop. Witches come from miles around, sometimes a, a mere thirteen, but more often scores of them, hundreds, sometimes even thousands, for this is the great triumph and glorious pagan celebration of the old religion. Do they worship Satan here? Who but a witch can say for sure? For the accounts in old documents differ greatly. Some say no, but most say yes. And naturally, modern witches tell you <laughs> never. Who knows? I'm sure that many different Sabbaths, varying greatly, have been celebrated at different times throughout the centuries, and that the devil was the guest of honor, revered and worshipped as often as not. Let us attend an early medieval Sabbath, shall we? The place is France, the time, the 12th century. As the hour approaches, the witch prepares. She strips herself naked and massages the magic ointment laced with delirious narcotic poisons into her body. Then, in fact or fancy, she flies up the chimney, over the fields, marshes and forests, to the appointed secret place. Imagine the scene. Bright resinous fires flicker and blaze with blood-red embers and darting, sparkling yellow tongues of flame, casting dancing shadows on the assembled people gathered in the murmuring, restless excitement of anticipation beneath the phantasmagoric pall of drifting sparks and smoke. There stands the officiating priestess called the Ancient One, although she may be young and beautiful. One witness describes her as a sorceress of seventeen, a pretty woman and atrociously cruel. She has the face of Medea, the beauty of Our Lady of Sorrows. Deep-set eyes, tragic, restless, wild. Her dark hair, an untamable torrent falling wildly around her shoulders, like writhing serpents, and on her head a crown of vervain, the deadly ivy, and the violets of death. The blood-red firelight bathes her sinuous body as she raises her arms before the altar. The Sabbath has begun. First comes the denial of God, feared by the peasants who are still pagan at heart. Now she turns to the image of Satan, a great wooden idol, horned and shaggy, with all the virile attributes of a satyr of Pan. She pays homage, kneeling to kiss him under the tail. Then it is his turn to consecrate his priestess. The wooden god welcomes her as Priapus of antiquity welcomed his female adorers. She gives herself to him and sits upon him for a moment, as the priestess of the shrine of the Oracle of Delphi sat upon the phallic tripod in the temple of Apollo. There follows feasting and drinking, wine, mead, hard cider, and perry, beverages to inflame the mind, 
perhaps laced with delirious belladonna. The dance begins, the music, men and women dancing, whirling frenzy in notorious witches round, back to back in circle, counterclockwise, faster and faster, in a possessed, abandoned madness of giddy delirium. And there are the most solemn rites, a parody of the Eucharist. The witch priestess is herself the altar, prostrate on her back, arms outstretched, her hair trailing in the dust. The devil himself performs the rites upon her loins. The figure of a man, masked, horned, clothed in a goatskin. What is the host? Who knows? It was many things at different times. Sometimes it was the sacred passion cake. Now she rises at last. She raises her arms to heaven, not in adoration, but in defiance of God, whose dominion she has usurped and mocked. In a great shrill voice she cries out, appealing to the lightning, the thunderbolts of heaven to strike her dead. There is awed silence. No thunder is heard, no lightning strikes. And God, having made no reply to her taunts, is considered vanquished. A wave of derisive laughter rolls over the crowd. Some of the people perform small miracles to impress and astonish the incredulous crowd. Toads, believed mistakenly to be deadly poisonous, are bitten and mangled in their teeth. Unharmed, they leap over the blazing fires, scattering glowing embers in mockery of the fires of hell. At this, the people join in the revelry in a frenzy of triumph. Men and women abandoning themselves to the pleasures of physical love in an uncontrollable outpouring of pent-up passions. But as time goes by, the witch's Sabbath assumes a more sinister, a more decadent aspect. Here are a few samples from the works of a medieval writer who specialized in the subject. After the dancing was done, he gleefully relates, each person seized whomever was nearest for his carnal pleasure, father with daughter, son with mother, brother with sister, with no regard for the laws of nature or of God. To this very day, in towns and villages in England, Germany, France, America, witches gather to the Sabbath in misty, darkling, doleful, secret places, perhaps this night, Perhaps this very hour, the old rites are celebrated. That we know for certain. Cosmic power is raised and spells and charms are cast. Are the old abominations practiced? The sacrifices, the orgies, the satanic kiss of shame? That I cannot say for sure. For if they are, surely no witch would admit it publicly. It's my belief that at most Sabbaths, none of this is done. But at others... Would you like to hear a few strange tales, true stories printed in modern newspapers? Stories that make you wonder? Ancient witch centers are scattered all over the British Isles. Modern witches still use many of them, including Chantonbury Ring in Sussex, which is famous as the most haunted place in England. A coven called the Moonrakers meets to this day at Gorse Hill near Swindon, a site frequently chosen for the Sabbath for over 
1,500 years. There are several covens of avowedly black witches in London, even today. There is one in Sherwood Forest, another in Brockenhurst. There are two in Hove, the Merry Order of St. Bridget and the Order of Sybil. Both satanic, flagellant covens practicing worship of the devil, the black mass, communal whipping, ritual orgies, and the raising of demons for malefic purposes. Not so long ago, a sacred chalice was stolen from an old church in Dorsetshire. It reappeared on the altar a few days later, stained with blood. Then early one morning, as some men were setting out to work, walking through the mist that hung over Tootingbeck Common, they were startled to come upon a gruesome sight. The severed head of a pig stared at them from the grass. Around it, arranged in a mystic triangle, were three pagan wooden crosses, each five feet high. Who knows what rites had been performed that night? Where does it all lead? Time moves in a great, eternally turning cycle spanning 28,000 years. The cycle is divided into 12 cosmic ages, each lasting 2,160 years by the calculations of astrologers. For some 2,000 years now, under the dominating influence of Pisces, mankind has been shackled by the belief that he was born in original sin, born to suffer, doomed before his life could even begin. This has been the dismal Piscean age of Kali Yuga, the age of darkness and despair. But now, are we on the threshold of the victorious age of light? Is this the dawning of the age of Aquarius? Now at last, we are beginning to understand and accept that our birthright is not suffering, doom, despair, and the denial of the flesh, but joy, vigor, brightness, fulfilled. The dark age is passing, and with it we are returning to the old religion, which has been called witchcraft. Witchcraft. The craft of the wise. We are no longer earthbound. To be sure, we reach for the stars and spaceships, but that in itself is nothing, merely physical. What is important is that the spirit reaches out into infinity, marveling at the fact that it is free, and we are just a tiny speck of dust in the awful immensity of the cosmos. One little planet in one little solar system, in one of a hundred thousand million galaxies like our own. And in the midst of this, science has discovered what mystics, witches, and magicians have known for millennia, that neither time nor space nor matter are absolute or what they seem to be. The old restricting physical laws and limitations have been transcended opening up forever the limitless reaches of the 
fourth dimension, the sixth sense, the world of the power of the spirit and of the mind. Nothing is impossible in the age of Aquarius. The final limitless age of magic has arrived. Magic is everywhere, always.